Good day, good day, my friends. Welcome to episode four. My guest today originally hails from South Africa. He was a former South African rugby league player, competitive basketball in Dubai, and he is now the national strategy coordinator for I Am Second. Let's welcome Sean Jones. Todd, thank hey, bro. you so much, man. Thanks. So so good to be here, man. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you for coming in, making the drive. Kitchener. Hey, man. I love the intro, dude. I'm fighting the urge not to uh, air guitar. That is the Hartshorn Brothers. I'd like to just, yeah, take that opportunity to thank the Hartshorn Brothers for putting that together. Wow, man. Really cool. So how was your drive, man, from uh, Kitchener today? It started off pretty good. And before I knew it, the ways added 45 minutes, but it was all good, brother. It's got a little, in, yeah, it, got, it, got in some good time with friends uh, stuck in traffic. It's good. That's good. It's a little bit of a hike here to our studios in Peterborough County. Definitely that's worth sure. the drive. It's very beautiful out here. Awesome. Awesome. Um, so, Sean, um, we've had a chance to chat. Um, I met Sean at a conference uh, back in October and uh, he shared his testimony with me and it was really, really moving. And uh, so I'm glad to become friends with you, man. Amen, brother. Um, can you just sort of talk a little bit about growing up in South Africa, um, London City? Where did you say you were? Yeah, a little coastal city called East London um, on the East Coast. It is, if uh, I'm giving you geography lesson, Durban to Cape Town, which is the two furthest cities apart from each other. We're right in the middle, on the on the bottom tip of, of South Africa. Uh, awesome. Yeah, cool place. Um, smallish city, uh, probably around 300,000 people, taking a guess here. Yeah? Uh, and uh, yeah, nice little coastal city, uh, very much a retirement place. It seems like a lot of people go there to retire by the coast. And, uh, yeah, as a kid, it's, uh, kind of a, it's kind of a place where you just want to get out and go to the big city. You know, you just, we call it slum town as the kids, you know, as the youngsters, we call it slummies. So, uh, as beautiful as it is, uh, most of the youth don't want to stick around there too long. Yeah. That's kind of, that seems to be kind of the story in most little towns, eh? Well, not little town, but smaller, smaller city, the allure of the big city. Yeah. You're always looking for green and grass on the other side, but, uh. I've learned that's not always the case. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So, um, Sean, can you talk a little bit about um, what what got you into what got you into rugby and and in that level of sport in South Africa, which is pretty big? Yes, you know, rugby is very much like hockey is for Canadians. It's it's sort of our our first love when it comes to sport. Um, I actually started off um, in competitive sports in school. Uh, I played basketball for my um, for a club in in, in East London, and uh, went pretty far. I ended up being selected for my province, and I played for my province for about seven years while in school. And uh, I got into rugby late in my sort of rugby career, if you want to call it that. Um, and I ended up. Uh, playing a few games for a club side, uh, not even in school. I played club rugby straight out of school and uh, found that my size and speed uh, was an advantage. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, 
you know, sports is such a it's 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 such a unifying cultural thing in South Africa. You know, it's something you you if you're passionate about it, you you end up living for that thing. And uh, early on in my in my journey in life, I found a lot of my identity in sport. And uh, I pursued rugby uh, very hard because it w- there was more chance of a career professionally in rugby than there was in basketball. But later on, I'd come to learn that both of these sports would have an impact, you know, on my life moving forward. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, rugby, I was surprised almost at how how successful I was in, in club rugby and uh, how much recognition I got partly because of my size and, and my speed was uh, um, unexpected. And uh, that eventually got me into a first division side, which is your highest level of club rugby. And uh, after making the first division rugby uh, club team, um, I was able to get on the radar for, uh, you know, in the pros, they have an invitation to come try out for trials, you know, for the pro team. And uh, it's called the Curry Cup, um, which is the South African rugby league in in South Africa. And uh, our team is the Border Bulldogs, relatively small province because it's a small city we live in and uh, don't usually do very well in that competition. But... uh, you know, we uh, we aspired to uh, to go as far as we can as the the David and the Goliath story, and uh, and so it was quite an honour just being invited to these trials and uh, managed to get onto um, uh, the B team. Uh, uh, I was successful in the trials, got selected, and uh, played two games, and then I suffered a very very severe car accident, which. Uh, as I shared with you before, Todd, you know, that uh, car accident uh, 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 was pretty severe. I had very bad uh, head injury, uh, neck injury, and uh, that took me out because of the concussion. It took me out of the uh, team and I lost my opportunity to play pro rugby. <laughs> but uh, God would show up and, uh, you know, and, and reveal to me that he had something bigger planned for me, you know, than sport. But at that time, that must have been pretty devastating because that sounds like it's obviously pretty significant in the country of South Africa and sort of a path to a sports career professionally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when you're a young man um, looking for your identity or your place in the world and, and when you find something you're good at and you go after that and you uh, and you start to find success in doing this, and and you think that you'll find happiness and uh, you know fulfillment in doing this, but uh, when it's taken away, it was it was devastating to me. Yeah, um, brothers and sisters. What was your family like? Mom and dad, brothers, sisters. Yes, uh, um, I've got uh, three brothers from my mom and dad's first marriage. Um, my parents divorced when I was ten years old, and um, my mom, both my mom and dad, remarried. Um, my mom had a daughter with her second husband and on my dad's side, uh, he had three more kids. Um, uh, he had, uh, another daughter and a set of twin boys on with his second wife. So yeah, pretty big family. So good support, good support. Like when you had this accident and all that type of thing. Yeah. We, you know, I had a very difficult childhood and, and parents struggled with alcohol addictions and things like that. So our family wasn't terribly tight. Um, at the time of my accident, I had a lot of support from my, from my wife at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, the family was always around, uh, uh, 
in in terms of supportive, uh, probably not as supportive as I would have liked, you know, in in everything in my life. But uh, but yeah, that was just part of my journey. Yeah. So what? Uh, so then. So then, as your story, as you've told me your story, this this then now finds you in Dubai playing basketball at a competitive level in Dubai. So how did that come about? How do you go from South Africa to Dubai, from rugby to basketball? How does that transition work? Absolutely. So in order to tell you that story, I've got to go backwards a little bit in my, in my journey. So before I started playing uh, competitive rugby, I was still, um, I was still playing competitive basketball. And uh, after school, I decided, you know, a lot of my friends went overseas and did a working experience overseas. And uh, that's something I'd um, thought about doing. And um, one of my friends that went over to Dubai actually told me about how cool Dubai was. And uh, they recommended an agency that they went with. And, uh, and that's what I did. I applied through this agency and uh, got a couple of job interviews lined up. And uh, the Dubai scene was blowing up in a sense of um, they were trying to attract more Western culture, um, the party scene, the shopping scene, and... Uh, there was a lot of hiring at the time in 2002 um, when people were looking for hotels were looking for staff and uh, uh, Western staff from South Africa seemed to be the cheap way to go. <laughs> we worked hard and we, we worked for very little. So we had a lot of opportunity and uh, I went for an interview with the Crown Plaza Hotel and uh, it wasn't going very well, if I'm totally honest, because I didn't have a lot of bar experience and uh, never bartended or... You know, I'd worked a little bit in the restaurant industry, but uh, uh, I wasn't exactly what they were looking for. But um, the person who was conducting the interviews actually noticed on my resume that I played basketball competitively. And uh, in the interview, he asked me to stand up and uh, he wanted to see how tall I was. And uh, at six foot six, he got very excited and asked me if I was any good at basketball, to which I replied, yes, I think I'm pretty good. And... Uh, he thanked me for coming to the interview and said he'd have a job ready for me if I would consider playing for their team, you know, the PBL uh, league in Dubai. And I just thought this was the craziest thing ever, you know, 21 years old, getting a contract to play basketball in, in Dubai and uh, a cool working party experience, you know, and that's sort of what I signed up for. And, uh, and uh, I moved over uh, to Dubai uh, first time ever out of the country, first time on an airplane, in, in actual fact, and it was quite an experience. You know, we stepped into, um, we st Crown Plaza was basically opening up a brand new nightclub, which um, was going to attract um, a lot of famous people. And they were really going all out to create a, a very modern, uh, uh, you know, cool hip um, club, which was called Zinc. And uh, I was part of the very first uh, crew that opened up the nightclubs called Zinc. Um, they would have a DJ combined with a live band. The live band would play music sets up until about two in the morning, and they would uh, share the they would share the time. You know, the DJ would play some, and then the live band would come on. The DJ would play, and uh, this is this is where I would meet my wife. You know, Isabel at the time. Um, my wife Isabel was uh, touring with this uh, Canadian band called uh, Westside Band, and uh, I was actually involved in with with six other guys that worked in the 
in the club, we, we, we sat down with the food and beverage director, Sean Spinks, and uh, Sean was asking us if we would uh, help him with um, choosing, um, choosing a band. And he had a whole bunch of VHS tapes, and this is dating, <laughs> dating myself now. But he was uh, going through a bunch of these VHS tapes and uh, looking at uh, different bands and trying to make a decision on the bands. And, um, of course, myself and the six other guys, we were helping him. And uh, if I'm totally honest, you know, this is before I saved. We were just looking for the prettiest girls in the band, you know. Sounds and, like the music business. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, when the West Side Band came... Uh, the audition tape uh, when we saw the West Side Band and uh, we saw these two beautiful girls in the band. Uh, of course, myself and the six other guys were like, "Oh man, they, that's by far the best band. Best you got to you got to get that band, Sean." And uh, and that's how the decision was made to to bring West Side uh, to Crown Plaza's uh, nightclub called Zinc. And uh, and so West Side was a Canadian band. Were they all from Montreal? Uh, Westside was a Canadian band, and uh, no, they weren't all from Montreal, but the, uh, most of the people in the seven-piece band were from Montreal. That's what I'm told. That's amazing. Yeah. That's very interesting how a South African man ends up in Dubai and meets a girl from Montreal yeah. in the same club. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it was, you know, it was an exciting time. You know, we, uh, I joked about it. My good friend Donovan... Uh, Donovan and myself were, um, while we were watching the audition tape, um, I had told Donovan that I had dibs on the, the tall, beautiful girl, which was Isabel, my wife at the, you know, and, and, and we jokingly said, you know, he would take dibs on the, you know, on, on Melissa and I would take dibs on, on Isabel. Little did I know, you know, this was just us messing about fooling around, but, uh, we, you know, after the, the band arrived and, we started to get to know the band and um man i was so smitten i was this uh this like like a teenage boy falling in love for the first time when i met isabel and uh she found me enduring for some reason you know she found it cute that i would be embarrassed every time she came around and i'd blush and you know i'd <laughs> i'd make her drinks you know behind the bar and uh and she would take them and you know tip them out in the back because i wasn't very good oh yeah <laughs> But yeah, we started a you know we started a friendship which blossomed into a, a relationship, and uh, we were dating for about six months while she was uh, while she was uh, working in Dubai. So she was on a, a contract. Yes, they were on a contract, contract. Um, which was actually only three months in the beginning. And uh, after three months, their band was such a huge success. Uh, uh, they really were loved by you know by the by the the audience and. Uh, the food and beverage director actually extended their contract and doubled it for another three months. And uh, that allowed us the opportunity, you know, to, to get to know one another. So what, um, what was the timing like? Or so take us through how you guys got married or how her contract ended there or you with the basketball. And Yeah, I, I played basketball on the weekends for the Crown Plaza's team. Um, and during the week, I'd work in the bar. Um, Isabel would also obviously work um, as as a singer uh, on the, uh, you know, on this uh, on the band. And uh, we'd we'd have the same weekend off, uh, day off. We'd have one day off a week, and uh, you know, we'd spend that time together. And uh, it was great, man. We we really really fell in love 
we really hit it off. We were best friends and, uh, you know, we talked about a future together and, uh, we, I actually had a tragedy back home in South Africa, sort of coming towards the, uh, seven, eight month mark in Dubai. Um, my little brother had a very serious car accident and, uh, ended up, um, in a coma in South Africa. And I flew back home for that for a, for three weeks. I spent three weeks, um, in South Africa because we weren't sure if he was going to make it or not. And, uh, after he came out of the worst of it, um, we knew he was going to be okay. I returned to Dubai and uh, continued with um, my contract uh, with Crown Plaza and, and obviously, uh, you know, to go back to Isabel. After one year, though, you know, Izzy had to uh, – sorry, after six months, uh, Izzy, um, her contract ended in Dubai and she carried on – she carried on with her touring – I think they went to – Jakarta and uh, a few other places afterwards. After one year that I spent in Dubai, uh, my time had come to an end and I went back home to South Africa. And uh, that's where we had planned to, you know, when Isabel was finished with her tour with the band, she would come back to South Africa and, uh, you know, we'd get get together and uh, and talk about getting married, <laughs> which is what she did. So, yeah, it was uh, exactly a year in Dubai that I spent, um, finished off the basketball season. It was incredible. We won the cup that year. I got a nice MVP trophy and uh, the experience on a whole was just really incredible. Um, I met the love of my life. I played uh, basketball competitively for a full year. Um, I worked, you know, in this nightclub, which was very interesting. And uh, after one year, uh, it was back to reality and uh, I missed home a lot. I felt a lot of guilt also for leaving my little brother in that condition and uh, uh, went back home to South Africa, um, you know, to, to pick up my life back, uh, you know, back home. And then hopefully, you know, to have my, my dream girl join me. Yeah. And uh, that's, what, that's what happened. Izzy um, joined me uh, in the December of 2003, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, she, she joined me in South Africa and I was just super excited to introduce her to my family and uh so she it, wrapped up touring and then came to South Africa. Yeah, she finished her tour with the band and uh and uh, she flew straight to South Africa and uh came in on a visitor's visa. And uh we got married a month later in South Africa and uh, wow. It was incredible. Yeah, we uh we we really were in love and uh, I was just so excited to show her my country, introduce her to my friends and family and uh and that's how our journey began in wow. South Africa. Yeah. yeah. So now, before this, were were you a believer in God, you or her, or did you guys have a sort of a religious background? Or I would say no. You know, I knew of God, and uh, you know, South Africa is very much a Christian country. You know, and when I was back in school, still they were still praying in in schools and uh, uh, Bible ed class during the week. Um, you know, uh, Isabel was um, Catholic, but not practicing. Yeah, back so, in that time, yeah, Quebec was yeah. predominantly predominantly Catholic. Catholic. Yeah. yeah, and so she knew also of God, but uh, uh, well, she wasn't practicing a faith. And uh, yeah, it was you know f for me, I really didn't really want to know anything about God. You know, I had such a difficult childhood, and uh, God was so far from me. It felt like you know in in, in my early adulthood and uh, you know 
as we started our, our life together, we actually struggled to find a pastor who'd marry us because you have to be in a church uh, and, and cert, you know to be able to have the, the, the pastor's blessing. And uh, we were very blessed to have um, a, a pastor by the name of Dave Ganetsky um, who married my mom and dad. And he knew of us and uh, he made a deal with us. He said, look, if I marry you, you guys have to promise me you'll come to church. <laughs> So we made the deal with him. We said, yeah, we'd come to church. And uh, uh, I regret not keeping my word. But we got married and uh, we did not go to church. And uh, we, we started our life um, as non-believers. And, uh, you know, good people. We didn't feel like we needed church to be good. Um, and we started that journey uh, together as a married couple. Isabel um, became pregnant um, pretty early on after our marriage and we had our first child together and she's on a she's just on a, a visiting visa so init yes initially she came in on a visiting visa after we got married this is where ah man the big the this big, is where the politics yeah. get involved right yeah we had a big uh, a drama early on in our marriage we had something that would really redefine me um as a man and 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 set me on a path you know to bring me back to god but after we got married, um, we went into the Home Affairs Office uh, to update her status or apply for a visa, whatever she needed, to be able to legally stay in South Africa. And, uh, you know, at the time, we were dealing with somebody in an office who probably was uh, incompetent to be doing what they were doing. But uh, we were given very bad advice um, about what visa she needed to be on. We were told by this official that she didn't need um, a visa to stay in the country because she had married a South African, which in part was true, but we still needed to fill out a form, you know, that, you know, that, that enabled her to stay in South Africa. But, you know, we were so ignorant and just, we assumed that this person knew what they were talking about. And uh, so we left that office feeling like completely confident that, you know, she didn't need a visa and she was legal in the country. But it turned out... <clears throat> Um, two years after uh, living with me in South Africa, um, now our baby was 12 months old and uh, at the time. And uh, it came out that uh, Isabel um, was actually in South Africa illegally because she hadn't filled out a form. And uh, the Home Affairs caught up with us and uh, they were very aggressive um, about how they handled this. They um, threatened to arrest her and... Uh, chuck her in jail uh, unless I had agreed to go right there and then on the spot and buy a plane ticket um, for her to go back to, to Canada. So when you say they caught up with you, like did they come to your house? Um, no, we were actually in the process of uh, inquiring about a visa to travel. And uh, when we were in the office and they found out that she'd been here for two years in South Africa, uh, that's when it caught up with us. And so we were devastated, man. We were just, you know, we, we were a young married couple. I was, uh, at the time, uh, the sole breadwinner and, and working for a, a tool rental company and uh, as a salesman. And, um, you know, we had a small baby and my wife was still breastfeeding. Um, and uh, our whole lives changed. You know, our, our whole life turned upside down when we received this news because, um, Isabel was being deported and sent back to to Canada, and 
we weren't prepared for that. You know, uh, we had a child together. You know, we'd been married for two years at that time, and uh, my baby didn't have a, a a passport or anything to travel, so she could not take the baby with her, and uh, we needed to get her out the country within forty eight hours. And so she was deported and sent back to to Canada without the baby. Yeah, without the baby. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, it was uh, it was a very difficult time in 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 my life you know if i'm totally honest i was playing competitive rugby at that time and uh, I, I probably wasn't the best father uh, you know i was very much still a kid at 23 years old um and uh i'd say my early days are so blessed to have isabel because she was an incredible mom she really carried the heavy load of looking after the of looking after our baby and uh Within 48 hours, I was, you know, uh, a single dad at home looking after a, a 12-month-old baby who the day before was breastfeeding and now mom is the gone. source of food that's gone. It was it was really traumatic. It was a very traumatic experience for both, well, for me, but especially for, for the baby, right, for Asatia, for my daughter. And, and you're working full-time. And you're back into competitive rugby. Yes, I was playing competitive um, rugby and uh, working full time, and uh, it was it was just really tough. It was really tough to, you know, at that point I was just so angry. I was so mad and and so angry at so many things. I I just could not believe I was going through this mess. Um, I I didn't think properly I, I was a little erratic and and what i ended up doing is i was so mad and i was thinking well if this is how my country is going to treat me i'm just going to leave you know and uh, i i was very erratic and made a decision which i regretted i, I quit my job and uh, i took whatever savings i had and uh, i went up to do a pretoria with my child to uh to to go and pick up a visa um from the canadian embassy which is in pretoria and I thought I'd just go in there, get a visa, and go, you know, fly to to Canada and join my wife. And that's as simple as that. That's what I'm doing because I'm super mad about how the government, you know, would would treat my my wife, you know, like a criminal. And uh, upon arrival in Pretoria, I was just shocked. I was shocked to find out that um, I was in no way entitled to come to Canada just because I'd married Isabel, uh, a Canadian. Um, in fact, the lady at the time who I was dealing with uh, at the Canadian Embassy uh, explained it to me like this. She said, look, uh, Mr. Jones, uh, this is not like a supermarket where you just come in to get uh, two liters of milk and a visa to go to Canada. You know, it doesn't work that way. You have to apply and you have to go through an interview process and, you know, and we deem whether your case is, you know, good enough for entry into Canada. You know, it's and uh, I was just shocked and disappointed and, and just terrified because, you know, now I'd quit my job and uh, started the whole process to leave the country. And Could you not have even got like a visitor's visa or were you or were you applying for like a one-year visa? Or Honestly, I didn't know what type of visa they would give. I was just there to 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 ask to get into the country and uh, uh, I didn't care what visa they gave me, but... At at the time, the lady just really didn't like the the story about Isabel being 
illegal in the country and uh, she was very negative um were you with your baby? Did you have your baby with you? I had you? my child with me, yes. And uh, that's what upset me even further because now I felt like, well, South Africa betrayed me and now I felt like, well, the Canadians don't even want to help. You know, I felt really helpless as a father. Um, my baby would cry every night, you know, because she didn't want to drink from a bottle and uh, she was just on very soft solids at that time. And uh, I remember just going through absolute misery trying to 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 get her to stop crying and she missed her mom and she just cried and cried and cried it was heartbreaking for me you know I really felt an urgency to get to Canada and and now I was being told that it's not going to happen so Mm. it was pretty tough to receive that news and uh and uh, go back to uh, my little city where you know where I lived and now without a job and uncertain how we're going to fix this problem it was it was a nightmare. It was real nightmare. Sounds like a crazy nightmare. So so now what? Now what do you do? Mm. Now you go back home with your baby. What? Yes, I I actually ended up going back home, and uh, I was uh, fortunate to be living with my brother at the time. So uh, uh, you know, he opened his doors to me, and uh, um. Sorry, actually, for a short time, I was still living by a friend's house with my baby. Um. And I would be uh, in the fight of my life at that time. I, I actually um, started talking to friends in the media. Um, we had people from a newspaper pick up the story and uh, they got behind me and tried to support me and put pressure on um, uh, the South African Home Affairs to fix this problem. And they put my story on the front page of the news and... Uh, the radio station, the local radio station heard about this and they also, they were terrific. They got behind me and uh, um, they started bringing attention to this story. And uh, I think for me at that time, I was just, um, I was quite a private person. So I, I really did not like this attention and, and all this publicity and it's a small town. So it's hard to hide it. It's very difficult to hide in a in a small town like this. So, but I, I knew it was a necessary, you know, action. In, you know, to we had to do something. You know, to 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 bring about change. And uh, and this little <laughs> media campaign would go on for a few months before we started getting uh, any notice from Home Affairs. And uh, the first response was very negative from the South African Home Affairs. These guys would call me up and threaten me and uh, told me that, um, you know, if we didn't stop with these accusations and, and all this nonsense that they were going to find me or, or take me to court. And, and, and it was really the darkest days. Uh, all I wanted to do is get the baby back with mom. You know, that was primary focus number one. I just, I felt like the baby was was being damaged by being separated by you know from her mom and uh, I just the only thing I focused on was was getting Isabel back reunited with 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 our child and so we worked pretty hard um you know trying to get this done and the it took about 4 months um but eventually the pressure uh got to home affairs they called me up made an arrangement for Isabel to fly back into South Africa on a 48-hour pass. She could come in, uh, see me, um, pick up the baby, and then 
the next day she had to be out of the country again and uh and so that's what happened she uh she flew in from canada um she arrived uh picked up baby and uh and flew back to canada and at that point i moved in with my brother to live by my brother because i had no job and uh it had been four months and my money was running very low and uh well everything was running low at that time you know it was just the hardest time of my life because now my child was back with my wife in Canada but I was all alone in South Africa and uh, not knowing you know when I'd ever see them again to be honest so now spiritually what's going on with you in this time like are people telling you to trust God or are you just not even is that not even on your radar are you angry at God is your wife angry at God oh yes um you know at that time, we had actually, just before this whole mess happened, you know, we had v- really started going to church. I would say more, I was doing it more for Isabel. She was intrigued by by faith and, and uh, wanted to explore this. And, uh, you know, she got into worship singing and she was singing on the worship team. And I'd go to church um, before this whole thing happened. But, uh, you know when tragedy and things happened in my life uh you know it's hard to it's hard as a young man and as a kid when i was going through so much of my stuff that it's hard to believe there's a god when all this stuff happens you know you just think well if if there is a god why am i going through this and uh, i think that's the headspace i was in at the time todd i was uh I was in a very dark place. I'd lost my my wife first and then my child was taken from me as well. And I'd stopped playing sport. I was unemployed. I had no more identity in anything. I just didn't want to, I didn't want to live, man. I was just locking myself in a bedroom and uh, living off the charity of my brother, um, and waiting to die like i mean we'd uh, my story stayed in the media um you know those people were warriors for me man i think back to the the all the incredible people that never let go of the story they're just so many good people wanted to see justice and uh even when i didn't want to fight they fought for me and uh i think in total there was probably about seven six or seven front page stories on in the paper um uh, continuous support from my friend uh, Gordon Graham on the radio. Uh, it was incredible. And uh, uh, I was really at my darkest time. It was coming close on 10 months uh, separated, you know, not seeing my wife and my child now. And uh, and I was, I was a hermit. I was locked up in my room, never left the house because every time I'd go out, somebody in town would ask me about my family and I'd just completely break down. So... I just got to a point where uh, I just locked myself in my room and just felt sorry for myself. I was just a, I was a miserable mess and uh, didn't want to see anyone except my brother. And uh, I'll never forget it. You know, it was it was a it was a late afternoon, and uh, my brother fixed up dinner and we'd eaten, and I was back in my bedroom and. Uh, my brother came and knocked at my door and, and said, um, you've got a visitor. There's someone here to see you. And I'm like, oh, man, I don't want to see anyone and just send him away. And I was surprised because my brother's house, we lived about 30 minutes out of town, you know, 
on a small rural, uh, little rural holding, like at one street where it was about 10 houses, um, mostly farm workers that lived on the street. And uh, it was in the middle of nowhere, 30 minutes from town. And so I was thinking it was probably one of the, you know, people from one of the 10 houses, one of the farmers, uh, workers, uh, uh, which, we, and we didn't know anyone on that street. So I was surprised by this and I really didn't want to see anyone, you know, I was wrestling in my head with God and, and I was talking to God at the time. I was actually praying. I was praying. I was saying, God, if you're real, like you need to show me a sign, show me that you're real because I just didn't want it. Like I was separated from my family with no end in sight, like thinking I just, I'd rather die if this is the situation, you know, I don't mm-hmm. want to, you know, God, if you're real, you need to show me a sign and, and uh, I need to know. And uh, that's when this friend came and knocked at the door and uh, my brother said to me, this guy says he's a pastor, like a youth pastor or something like that. Now I was intrigued because you know, I just prayed like a day before, you know, for God to give me a sign if he was real. And I was thinking, now, nah, pastor, are you kidding me? Just a pastor rocks up on my doorstep. So I'm thinking, okay, well, let, let me see this guy. Let me let me give God the chance that I asked for. And I met with this guy and, uh, man, uh, <laughs> I'll never forget his face. He was, he was such a peculiar looking man. Um, he had a very bad skin acne, uh, a very crooked, pointy nose, um, bulging eyes like a goldfish. Um, he was incredibly peculiar, very uh, easy to describe, if you know what I'm saying. Like he was, he was, he looked like an alien. And uh, sweet, sweet, gentle man. Uh, he told me he'd heard about my story and he asked if he could pray for me. And, uh, you know, I think I'd had a thousand people pray for me with no results. And, and when he said that, I just said, yeah, sure, pray for me and uh, be on your way so I can go back in my room and die. <laughs> and, Did you uh, actually say that to him? No, I didn't no, say it. That's what I was feeling. And uh, <laughs> Oh, man, I was so miserable at that time. I don't know how my brother put up with me. But uh, but uh, this gentleman prayed, prayed for me and... Uh, I didn't even ask his name. I just, you know, I, I think back to that time and, and I remember it so well. And uh, I don't even know why I didn't ask. I wasn't not in a good headspace. I just, you know, this guy was in there and asked to pray for me and he did. And before he left, he actually proposed something to me. He asked me if I would be prepared to fast with him. And uh, I, I didn't know what fast meant or what fasting was. And uh, I said, I'm prepared to do anything, brother, if that brings my, my family back. But I don't know what that is, you know. So you, so he explained to me what fasting was. And, uh, and I replied to him. I said, look, man, <laughs> sure, I'll fast with you. I mean, I, wasn't, I was barely eating as it was. And so abstain from food and drink. And, you know, we do this for... For a week, he said to me, uh, let's fast for a week and let's see if God will, will answer us. And so I agreed to it and, uh, and he left. And uh, ah, man, I, afterwards I realized that I didn't even ask him his name or his phone number. Um, how are we going to track with this? Like, is, you know, who checks in on who if, if we're fasting correct? Like, uh, 
was a little frustrated at my stupidity at the time, but I just agreed. I thought, well, he'll probably follow up with me at the end. And uh, so I'm going to do my part. I'm going to fast. You know, I really wanted to give God every chance to, to answer my prayer. And so I remember we started fasting on the Monday and, uh, then I'd started, you know, wondering, oh, did he mean like a week? He said, let's fast for a week. Did he mean like a business week or <laughs> the five, five days or <laughs> was, uh, is this five day week, seven day week? I wonder what he meant. Like, anyway, I fasted and, uh, Monday to Friday and, uh, nothing happened on Friday. So, uh, a little frustrated and, uh. I thought, okay, well, he probably meant a full week, like including the weekend. So I fasted for the Saturday and I fasted for the Sunday. And uh, Sunday evening came and uh, there was nothing, you know, no good news. I was also very frustrated because this youth pastor did not even reach out to me. He didn't come back to me. He, uh, you know, he just, he said he was fasting with me. Let's fast for a week. And I didn't hear from him. And uh, on Sunday, I was pretty angry with God again because this just felt like another letdown. Wow, what a crazy story. Sorry to cut this off, friends. We've just run out of time. Have you ever been angry with God? Stretched and at the end of your rope? Have you ever fasted? Join us next week for the conclusion of Sean Jones' story. And in the meantime, I'll leave you with a taste of another track from Disciple of City Music. This is Cover the City. Thanks for listening. See you next week.